Good morning. It is good to see everybody out here this morning. How many of you are ready for this sickness to go away completely? I was getting messages this morning from people that uh, wouldn't be here today because they're ill. It has hit our church particularly hard. A lot of people sick. Uh, Just continue to pray for each other. And uh, we kind of turned a corner in our house this week uh, where it started getting better. And... uh, but it just hangs on. And I'll tell you what, it just hangs on. <laughs> We've started our, uh, a message last week on talking about the Great Commission, a couple weeks ago actually. Our theme for this year as a church is each one reach one. The idea of evangelism. I know uh, before we get into this message today, just want to kind of clarify some things and, and uh, let you know where I'm coming from as the pastor of the church, uh, I realize that evangelism is not something that is hugely taught in churches today. We are become more of an experiential type of uh, faith. Uh, it go, we, we go from experience to experience. And it seems like in churches today, uh, it's all about keeping people entertained and keeping their attention so that uh, you can keep your crowd up or whatever it is. But I think that what we've done in churches over the last several years is lose the focus on what we're truly here for. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to um, draw a crowd, although that is uh, a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ and to lift up his name, but also to spread the gospel. That's the purpose of a church, to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I know many of you... uh, are newer to your faith. We have a a very young in faith church. And I know many of you come from churches where evangelism wasn't really taught. What we're about to get into in this series as we dig into the Great Commission and what we're called to do as believers can seem very difficult and can seem very blunt. In fact, the verses we're going to read is our text this morning. If you've ever read um, Ezekiel, Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 33, what will be this morning, talking about the watchman. It's pretty blunt. And it lays responsibility for the lives of others directly on us. I want you to understand that this comes not from a heart of anger, the heart of anger, uh, uh, God's heart of anger. It comes from a heart of love, of a loving God who loves this world. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into this message today. So be prepared, I guess is what I'm saying. Be prepared as we get into this because there are some hard truths. You remember in John chapter 6, Jesus was talking about uh, following him and what it takes to follow him. You get around verse 66 of John chapter 6 and Jesus made some very difficult statements to the people. Man, he laid out what it meant to follow him and what sacrifice for following him was all about. And the Bible says in, in verse 66 of John 6 that at that moment, many people turned away and stopped following him because it was so very difficult to make the sacrifices that it cost to live a life that would honor Jesus Christ. I would challenge you with this. I know this is tough stuff. I, I live this every day. I know what it means to to feel the responsibility, not just for a congregation of people, 
but for the community, especially a community like ours, where we are the third least evangelized metro area in the country, where the need is so vast and so vital. I'm positive that this is back in, at the end of last summer, God laid this message, this whole theme for the year and this message on my heart because I believe that our church is ready for it and I believe it's necessary. If we are going to go beyond what we've become and how we've grown over the last two years and really how we've seen people come to know Christ and we're going to continue to replicate ourselves and continue to build this work and make a difference in our community and reach people for Jesus Christ, we have each one of us got to get this down. We've got to understand what evangelism truly is and what role we play. It's not just about supporting your pastoral leadership team so that they can go out and do the work. It's about each and every one of us grasping the reality that we are missionaries for Jesus Christ. That each one of us has been tasked with the responsibility of reaching others for Jesus Christ. Now, you have not been tasked to reach the world. You've been tasked to reach your community. You've been tasked to reach your circle. That's why we say this year our theme is each one reach one. Because if each one of us could reach one other one for Jesus Christ, then it's addition by multiplication. It's building the kingdom of God one person at a time. We have over 200 people that call New Life their church, their home church. What if this year each person at New Life reached one person with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's another 200 people. Next year it will be, see how multiplication goes? It just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. So that's where we're coming from with this, uh, with this uh, idea. Now, Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning at verse 3, the following passage is very blunt. It's very powerful. It's very harsh. But it's also very true. Let's go ahead and read it. Ezekiel 33, beginning at verse 3. And suppose... God is speaking to the nation of Israel here. Let me give you background. He's speaking to the nation of Israel here, and he's talking about um, being, a, being a, a guard, if you will, for the city. And it's a metaphor or a story um, about not just the, the, the guard for the city, but also being a watcher for the world. And we make the application as Christians that we have been called, as those who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we have been called as watchmen or watchers for the world. Beginning of verse 3, Jesus is speaking. He says, And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be his own fault. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. However, suppose the watchman, that's us, okay? Suppose the watchman sees the sword coming, but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned. And the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Man, that's powerful. That is, that is right in your face powerful. 
What God is saying here to us as believers is that we have been placed as watchmen for this world. And we know the truth. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you know the truth. You know what Jesus Christ came to this earth for. You know why he died. You know why he gave his life a ransom for many. You know the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, you can't make anybody accept Jesus as their Savior. But you, make no mistake, you, each and every one of us, has been made a watcher for this world. We have been set up as guards to this world, and we have been given the task of telling everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ. I know people are going to reject it. Not everybody is going to accept it. But that's not your responsibility. The Bible says if they choose to reject it, then they will die in their sin because of their sin. But their blood is on their own hands. But if you fail to tell them, they will still die in their own sins, but you are accountable for their life. You are responsible. Remember <clears throat> when I was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, as I worked a part-time job at delivering pizzas for Domino's. And I would drive up to, uh, it was Custer Hill, uh, where all the, the, um, the units were stationed up there as 1st Infantry Division. I'd deliver pizzas up there. Well, the guy that owned that franchise just off post, his name was Khalid Mahmoud. Khalid was a very nice guy. And... Uh, we would chat every once in a while, and Khalid had moved over from, I believe it was India, to come to America, and his whole goal was to build a business and make a lot of money. He wanted to make a lot of money and put it away so that he could move back to India and live like a king. That's, that's what his goal was, and, and we talked about it a lot. And over the course of time that I worked there, Khalid and I had many, many conversations, and conversations about his goals, conversations about my life, and conversations about uh, being in the military and, and living there at, at Fort Riley in the Junction City, Kansas area. And the one conversation we never had in all the time I was there was a conversation about Jesus Christ. I never shared my faith with Khalid. Not once. Not once did I ever tell Khalid that I was a youth pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Junction City, Kansas. That I had a youth ministry that ran 85 kids on Sunday morning. That I preached to these kids every Sunday morning about being responsible and telling their friends about Jesus Christ. That I took the, these are back, this is back in the 80s, man. This is back in the days of soul winning, going door knocking and handing out tracts on the streets. One year, that youth ministry saw over 700 people make professions of faith for Jesus Christ. I led that youth ministry. I took these kids out soul winning every Saturday. I worked the bus ministry. I drove a bus every Sunday, picked kids up and brought them to church. But not once in all that time did I take the opportunity to share my faith 
with a man I worked with named Khalid Mahmoud. A few months before I ETS'd from the army, read the newspaper, the Junction City newspaper. There was a story about a man who was driving out to Fort, uh, to, uh, it was Hayes, Kansas. He was gonna open up a new Domino's. He was gonna have his second one. And he was driving back and forth between Junction City and uh, that, that town out in, in western Kansas near the Colorado border. He was successful. <laughs> he was really building his fortune. But one night, Khalid Mahmoud had an accident and he died. Now, I don't know if anybody else ever told Khalid about Christ. I don't know. But I know this. I never did. And that man's face haunts me to this day. Because I didn't take the opportunity, the many, many opportunities I had to share my faith with a man who needed Jesus. I just didn't do it. Listen, I don't know how passionate you are about your faith. I know that many of us get to a point in our lives where it just becomes ritual, where we ju it, it's just a box to check off every week to go to church. Let me tell you, folks, if that's you, you really, really, really need to reevaluate where you are. Because in Ezekiel 33, we are told that we have been given an amazing responsibility, a powerful responsibility. And that responsibility is to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It's not our job to make them accept. You can't make anybody accept Jesus Christ, but you sure can live it and share it with them when the opportunity arises. Listen, we can make all the excuses we want. We can blame things. We can do this, that, and the other. The bottom line is it lays on us. Why do we take every chance we get to reach out? Why do we do things that other churches won't do? Listen, I take a lot of heat from a lot of pastors uh, about things we do here. And I just really don't care. Because I will do whatever it takes to get the gospel out to this community. I will do whatever it takes to give you as the people of new life the opportunity to share your faith with people you may never meet except through what we do here. Why? Because we have been called to be watchmen for this world. It's a great responsibility. Great responsibility when you're a true follower of Jesus. Our task isn't to observe and report our task is to take action and sound an alarm. See, as someone who has received the free gift from Jesus, you've been called and commissioned to share the gospel with others. You have been called to be accountable for the eternal souls of those, God, of, of those who God brings into your path. Like I said, you're not accountable for the whole world. That's a job nobody can do. You're not accountable for the whole world. You're accountable for the people that come into your path. The account, you're accountable for the people that God leads into your life every day. We, we call those, uh, those chance meetings. 
You call those God things, right? When God brings somebody along and it's just the opportunity to talk and share. You ever found yourself just making conversation with somebody and it opens up the door like being at work and somebody talking about what happens after you die? Listen, those are opportunities that God is giving you, open doors that God is placing in front of you to share your faith. You're responsible for those things. You may not like it. It may scare you. It may make you nervous. But it's the fact of the matter, and we must embrace that calling with passion. The sooner we do, the sooner the tide will be turned for others who need Jesus. And just in case this hasn't put enough on you already, let me just add this. The sooner we as Christians realize and accept our responsibility and begin preparing ourselves to share the gospel effectively, the sooner people will start, stop dying and going to hell. The sooner we will begin to turn the tide for others in their lives. Not everybody will accept him, but some will. Well, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand that. Let me just bring it back and make it personal for you. You accepted Jesus, right? Somebody took the time and made the effort to tell you about one who died for your sins. If it works for you, why won't it work for other people? All that is is an excuse, folks. We've got to embrace the responsibility, accept the responsibility, and do something about it. As we dig into the Great Commission, more to the point, <laughs> our role and our part in the Great Commission, it's imperative that we understand some key facts about religious attitudes among Americans. I believe we must be culturally aware and culturally relevant. And I know that's where a lot of people in church just draw the line. Listen, I believe we need to be culturally relevant because people don't want to align and, and, and don't, please understand what I'm saying. Don't take this personal. People don't align themselves with freaks, right? People don't align themselves with crazy folk. They make memes about them on Facebook. <laughs> Am I right? So we need to be culturally relevant. We need to be able to be people that others can connect with in some way. We need to be able to find common ground with people. Because that opens the door for us to reach them with our faith. So we need to be culturally, re culturally relevant. That is really hard for me to say. Okay? Sorry about that. <laughs> Excuse me. So I believe we need to understand some things about Americans in that way. If we're truly going to understand and participate in enacting the Great Commission, we must do our best to grasp the nature and the vastness of the need. Especially, I'm going to share some statistics with you here in, in just a minute. In a nation that, that calls itself a Christian nation, and I'm going to show you statistics for that, um, and that's debatable. You can debate whether or not we're a Christian nation or a nation of Christians. It doesn't matter. But I think it's incredibly important that we understand something about what it means to truly be a Christian. I'll, I'll uh, tell on Erin a little bit here. She's taking um, some theology classes in college. And she wrote a paper. I think I mentioned this last week. She wrote a paper. It was Wednesday night. Wrote a paper about how to reach someone that is outside of your faith, that doesn't share your same faith. What would you, how would you use the Bible? And Erin chose the Catholic faith. 
Her professor, now this is a Bible, a, a Christian university here in America, her professor knocked points off because she chose someone within the Christian faith. Now, I as a pastor of an evangelical church take issue with that, and I would really love to write this professor, sit down and have a conversation. I'm sure my father would as well, um, because Catholicism is not true Christianity. I'm sorry if you have a Catholic background and if you feel differently, but I can sit down and share with you from the Word of God and share with you theologically where Catholicism is not true Christianity. You can call yourself whatever you want. I can call myself a car and go into a garage. It still doesn't make me a car, right? I mean, we're having that debate today in our, in our society. Call yourself whatever you want. I can call myself a seven foot two inch Chinese woman, but it doesn't mean it's true. Right? I'm still five foot eight, slightly overweight, bald, white guy. It's just the fact of the matter. And the fact of the matter is, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Do we have scriptural basis for that? Yes. We need to understand the magnitude of the issue. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 18. A good tree can, these are the words of Jesus, by the way. A good tree cannot produce bad, uh, can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You see... We've got to be able to get ourselves to a place of discernment where we truly are comfortable telling people it doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter what you've been taught. If you've been taught one plus one equals 17 all your life, guess what? That may be what you've been taught, but that's not true. One plus one is two. We have a math teacher here that can tell you that that is the fact. Just because people have been taught one way all their lives about how to get to heaven doesn't mean it's true. We stand on the word of God and the word of God alone. And folks, we've got to understand that just because people go to church and just because people call themselves Christians, they get a pass with God. We've got to be able to get ourselves to the place where we are willing to tell people, listen, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad that you have that kind of a background. But what have you done with Jesus in your life? Have you accepted him as your personal savior? We've got to be willing to do that. Now, before we get into the area of accountability, there's four different aspects of, of um, the Great Commission we're going to be looking at through, this, um, through this, this next phase of each one reach one. Before we get into the accountability part, I want to share, it's, it's important that we understand some definitions. What is it that we're talking about? Because so many times in church, as Christians, we can use our own language, right? We, call it, we can call it Christianese. We can use our own language, and we understand what we're talking about. 
They don't. Or maybe I understand what I'm talking about, but you may not. So I want us to get some definitions, understand to, that we understand some definitions here of what we're talking about, and then some statistics about where we are and, and how big the job truly is. The first definition I want to lay at your feet is this, the definition of the phrase born again. How many of you have heard the phrase born again, right? It's a scriptural term, by the way. I know the, the, the media uses it, it uses it derisively about us, right? Oh, those born-againers. Oh, they think they have to be born again. I, you know, the reason we say that is because Jesus said it. In John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So the term born again is not a, is not, has not been made up by churches, hasn't been made up by Baptists, hasn't been made up by Pentecostals, hasn't been made up by anybody except Jesus himself. He says, if you want to get to heaven, he was telling Nicodemus one-on-one, -on -one, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. He wasn't talking about a physical birth. He was talking about a spiritual rebirth. He says that we are all dead spiritually when we're born. Paul says, you, hath he, you has he made alive. In, in the old King James, he uses the word quickened, right? You hath, you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin. You has he, he's, he has made alive who are dead in your sins. So we need to be born again. The term born again simply means this. One who has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and believes that when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the very basic definition of being born again. One who realizes at one point in their life they were a sinner. And that sin has consequences. That sin has separated us from God. And that there's no way that we as individuals can be good enough. We can't work hard enough. We can't do anything enough to get ourselves to heaven. But Jesus became a man came down to earth, did not lay aside his godliness. We call it the hypostatic union. Jesus was all God and all man at the same time. Okay? He felt the limitations that he allowed on himself as a human being. Jesus was hungry. Jesus got tired. But he never laid aside his godliness. He never laid aside the power of being God. That was, he, he did that so that he could die for our sins. We couldn't die for our sins and pay the price for our own sins and then enjoy the freedom that it gives. If we had to die for our own sins, we would just be dead and spend eternity in hell. But those of us who are born again, we've realized that we are sinners, that we're separated from God, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that we have had to make a conscious choice to accept Jesus as our Savior. It's not enough to know. You've got to do something about it. You've got to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Remember when Paul was talking to Agrippa in the book of Acts, near the end of the book of Acts, as before he went to Rome to stand before Caesar, where he was eventually had, was beheaded, uh, as tradition tells us? Paul laid out the gospel, man. He laid out the whole plan before King Agrippa, right? What was Agrippa's response? Almost you've persuaded me to be a Christian. Almost you've persuaded me, but not yet. At a more convenient time. Listen, a born again person realizes that the most convenient time is now. 
Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. That is the definition of a person who is born again. It doesn't mean you vote Republican. It doesn't mean you're pro-life. It doesn't mean that you love the president and hate others who don't stand with him. It means that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We've, we've allowed things to come in and muddle the, muddy the waters. But it's very simple. Being born again simply means you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you're trusting that for your, your eternal destiny. The second definition is this. Evangelical. Now, we talk about that a lot, and, and I'm guilty of using the term evangelical without really explaining it. Okay, so let me explain what an evangelical is. An evangelical, once again, an evangelical is not a, is not a just because you're a member of the Republican Party, which I'm not, by the way, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm a straight up independent, okay? So I'm not picking on anybody. But the right wing always gets lumped in with evangelicals and, and evangelicals with the right wing. So it doesn't, that's not what it means. Okay, it's not a political term. Evangelical is simply this, one who is born again, but also believes these seven things to be true. These seven things are what separate us from some other churches who understand, who, who teach, uh, teach salvation or being born again, but don't necessarily teach that we must uh, go a step further to be witnesses to the world. Not to gain salvation, but to be witnesses of the world. These seven things that are, are what we as a, as a leadership of the church and what this church stands for that makes us an evangelical ministry. First of all, faith is very important in our lives today. We believe that here that, that faith should be interwoven. Your faith should be interwoven with your life so that they become one. There's no beginning or end to your faith and your life. It's all together and you live the grace walk every day with Jesus Christ. Second thing is, believe, we believe that we have a personal responsibility to share our faith. We have a personal responsibility to share our faith. Each one reach one. Third one is that we believe that Satan exists. We believe that Satan exists. If you're here this morning and you're not, you don't think so, he's got you, he's got you buffaloed, man. Seriously. Satan exists. No doubt about it. And his goal is to destroy you. Fourth one is that we believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. We believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. No, Jesus didn't sin. No, he didn't even have the capacity to sin. Was he tempted? Absolutely. But he never sinned. Being tempted is not sin. Okay? Being tempted doesn't make me portly. Being tempted with double stuff Oreos and giving in to eating an entire pack of them <laughs> makes me so. Okay? So being tempted isn't sin. Giving in to the temptation is. Assert, we assert that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. We believe, listen man, I don't care what... what um, what version you use, I believe this is the Word of God from cover to cover. No equivocations, no errors, no problem. You're that narrow-minded? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wear that as a badge of honor. I believe, listen, I believe in a young earth 
I believe the earth is a little over 6,000 years old. I truly do. I, I, I completely disagree with evolution. I think it's a farce. That may, that may offend your delicate sensibilities. We can talk about it. I believe it's a farce. And, it, and it now, because Christians have actually stood up and fought against the thought of evolution, did you know that most, most uh, every honest evolutionary scientist now says, well, evolution is completely unprovable. Oh, no kidding. Really? Imagine that. You've just raised in a couple generations of kids that believe it hook, line, and sinker. Now you say it's unprovable. Why is it unprovable? Because it's un unobservable. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, that means that there's no evidence or proof of it? Gosh, I thought that's what we've been saying all this time. Listen, you, I, you can believe that a rock is your brother. I don't care. Just don't teach it as fact to my children. You understand? I, I don't care if you believe your foot is the king of the world. Just don't teach it as fact to my children. And don't rail on me because I believe that there's a, an intelligent creator who designed all of this and controls all of this. And that I reject your silly, your silly assertion that, that this amazing... Look, have you ever stopped to look at creation? At the world? At the intricacies of the human body? Listen, I'm a walking, talking example of, of mankind trying to replace what God created. Okay? I've got an entire right leg of titanium or products and byproducts. And I'm here to tell you, and if, you're, if you've got a replacement of any kind in your body, you can, you can attest to it. It's not the same. It's not the same. Mankind can try to replicate, but they never, will never duplicate. They can't make it the same way. Because God designed our bodies in this universe, in this creation, in an amazing way. And to think that it all came about by some cosmic accident, to me, is absolutely silly. That's, and that's, listen, if that, like I said, if you, if you agree with it, we can talk. But that's my, that, that's my right, and that's my stand. I just think it's silly. Now, the next thing is that we believe that eternal salvation is only through grace, not works. You cannot be good enough to get yourself to heaven. And then an evangelical describes God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. Being born again and then believing those seven things puts you in the class, puts you in the, the category of being an evangelical. I proudly wear that badge. I don't care who has hijacked it. I don't change my stand. That's what I believe. The third definition is this. Unbeliever. An unbeliever is very simple. When we talk about those outside of Christ, those uh, who are unbelievers, it is simply this. One who has never made a personal commitment to Jesus for their eternal soul. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you make you a Christian. Just because you read your Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Remember, go back to one of, our, one of our seven key things to make us evangelicals. We believe that works cannot get you to heaven. That includes good works in the church. Listen, if you think because you're a member of New Life Church and you're involved in the ministry that that's going to get you to heaven, you're wrong. You are still an unbeliever. You have got to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ for your eternal soul and accept Him as your Savior. 
Very quickly, we'll, uh, we'll finish this message next week, but let me give you some very relevant statistics about, and I'll leave you with these today, some very relevant statistics about Christianity and, and religion in America. I think that's a better term. Religion in America today. Almost three-quarters of Americans, 73%, say they are Christians. 73% of all Americans claim to be Christians, but that definition is very broad. And it's not biblical. Did you know that the word Christian, uh, it was, they were called Christians first in a town called Antioch. We read that in the book of Acts. They were called Christians first in Antioch. And the term Christian was a derisive term. It wasn't a badge of honor. It was a, a badge of mockery. And what they were saying, was they were calling them little Christs, making fun of them. Making fun of them because Jesus, in the, in the, ter- in, in the, the, uh, the, the mindset of those who were mocking, Jesus lived a wasted life. Because he preached and, and he was a magician, and then he was killed a humiliating death by the Romans. So to call us Christians was mocking us, right? So the definition of Christian is very broad. Now, only one-fifth of Americans, 20%, claim no faith at all. That includes all atheists and agnostics. A fraction. Now, here's, a, here's something very important, uh, I think, for us to grasp. Only 6% identify with faiths, with other faiths like Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, or Hinduism. 1% of all Americans are unsure. Okay? Born-again Christians, the definition that we talked about. Remember, 73% of Americans claim to be Christian. Born-again Christians make up roughly one-third of the population. Only 35% of Americans claim to be born again according to the biblical definition of being born again. See, that changes everything, doesn't it? Less than half of all those who claim to be Christians truly claim to be born again. 23% are considered Bible-minded. means they believe the Bible is accurate in all its principles. It teaches and have read the scriptures within the past week. 7%. Remember I said at the very beginning of this that... There's a big difference between churches and churches that call themselves evangelicals and churches that don't. Only 7% of all Christians in America, of those 35% of born-again Christians, only 7% consider themselves evangelicals. Are you starting to understand why this task is so enormous? Why we're spending our time talking about our responsibility to reach people with the gospel? Only one out of five Christians in America who, believe, who claim to be born again believe that they have a responsibility to share that faith with others. That's amazing to me. And 55% of Americans believe good works will result in getting them to heaven. 55%. That overlaps into, if you see that, that overlaps into people that call themselves Christians. Do you see why the task is so huge? Do you see why we're spending so much time talking about this? These statistics cover the entire nation 
of the United States of America. And yet we live in the third least evangelized metropolitan area of the country. These statistics are way overblown for our region. You see, folks, we can, we can read all the books we want about faith. We can watch videos. We can listen to K-Love or listen to the Q on our radio. We can indoctrinate ourselves with Christian music and the Christian lifestyle. But it doesn't win people to Jesus Christ. We are responsible for the eternal souls of others, for at least telling them about Jesus. It's our responsibility. And we are accountable. We might not like that. It may make us uncomfortable. It may make us unsure and scared of ourselves, about our own abilities. But there's no question and no doubt about the fact that we are accountable to share our faith. Now, heavy stuff. I promise we're not going to leave you there. Okay? I promise it's not as bad as it sounds. It's actually pretty exciting when you think about it. Think about this. You have the opportunity to help someone find Jesus Christ and change their eternal destiny from eternity in hell to eternity in heaven. How cool is that? How amazingly cool is that? I challenge you. <laughs> Come back next week. <laughs> Come back next week. It gets better. It gets exciting. It gets fun. And I don't see these as, as um, statistics or, or facts that should discourage us. I believe they're challenges. I believe it should motivate us to have the great desire to tell others about Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, thank you so much. <laughs> for the opportunity to be here this morning, the opportunity to share your, your word. Lord, it is, it is heavy-duty stuff that we've talked about this morning. It would be much easier to talk about the fun things or the easy things and, and uh, managing our life and things like that. But God, what we talked about this morning, boy, this is what this, I believe, is what living our lives is all about. Lord, I pray that each one of us, including me, will take this information that we've been given this morning and will allow it to sink into our souls, allow it to sink into our hearts and minds, and may each and every one of us realize that we are responsible not to, not to win people to you, but to tell people about you. God, would you begin to build a fire and a passion in our hearts and in this church that can't be extinguished, that causes us to desire more than anything to let our light shine to this world. Bless us as we go. May we go out worshiping you, go out as missionaries, taking every opportunity to walk through every open door to share our faith. 
Bless us, Lord. In your name we pray.